there are many things that simply don't mix very well. Salt and wounds, oil and water, forks and outlets, orange juice and toothpaste, Microsoft and Apple. Uh, The list could go on. Uh, Eddie Cantor, the late American comedian, said, uh, truth or tact, truth or tact, you have to choose. Most times, they are not compatible. Uh, For many people, I'm sure uh, many of us uh, over the years, we've felt a tension at times in our lives between two things, truth and love, truth and love. Being bold about what is the truth and what is true can come across with the potential risk of being or sounding cold or harsh. On the other hand, a radical commitment to love and care and compassion for others may communicate or come across to some as being soft, soft on the truth. This kind of apparent dichotomy shows up in many places. I think one place it shows up is uh, back in the 1992 best-selling book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. You may be familiar with the book. Uh, The author, John Gray, in the book, among other things, suggests that men, on the one hand, are far more concerned with solving problems, getting down to the bottom of things, the truth. Women are far more concerned, he says, with empathizing and the relational You can discuss and and debate whether you agree with that at a later time. But that tension between truth on the one hand and and concern for love and compassion on the other shows up in various ways uh, in our lives. Some would say that truth is, is much more firm or even aggressive. Whereas love, people may say or see as more agreeable, yielding, even at times passive. I think the COVID pandemic surfaced this kind of tension. I certainly felt it. Were you inclined more to figure out what is true, what is real, and put that forth? Or did you have a greater concern for for your neighbor, expressing empathy, compassion, understanding, varied perspectives? When serious matters surface in our lives and in the church or society, it can be a challenge to balance and demonstrate a sincere care for others, and at the same time, affirm what you understand to be true. I think this is true of churches, even denominations, people would suggest. Some would suggest that there are churches that are love-oriented, and others that are more truth-oriented. Truth churches, we might say, are they're committed to doctrine, apologetics, Evangelism, saving the lost, teaching, love uh, churches, more committed to community, counseling, soul care, mercy ministry, soup kitchens. Well, if you see or you feel that kind of tension, and if you think it's worth considering, a, a great place to consider it is John's second letter, the Apostle John's second letter. We examined all of 1 John, and now I want us to consider this very short letter of just 13 verses, 2 John. So I'll give you a moment to turn there, right after 1 John. 2 John. 
Listen now to God's Word. John writes, The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Well, immediate questions uh, perhaps come to the surface as to the identification. Who is the, the elect lady and her children in verse 1? What about the elect sister and her children at the close in verse 13? John identifies himself as the elder there in the opening verse. And he's writing to this elect lady whom he loves in the truth. It almost sounds like this, this could be a personal love letter in the first century. He even says in verse 5, I ask you, dear lady, that we love one another. But for important reasons, this is more likely a letter John is writing to a local church, a local congregation. For one, much of the letter is written in the second person plural. So we see, for example, in verse 8, watch yourselves so that you, plural, you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full uh, reward. Further, we think about the word lady. The word for lady and the word for church are actually quite similar. The Greek word for church in the New Testament, ekklesia, is a feminine noun. We also think about Paul's language in Ephesians 5, referring to the church as the bride of Christ. John uses the same language in Revelation chapter 21. So, as we're reading this and hearing this, the domestic language of children, sister, Dear lady, this domestic language is really language of the church. The elect sister at the end is probably the congregation from which John is writing. Similar context of 1 John as he's uh, most likely around the city of Ephesus ministering and uh, writing to the elect lady and her children. Remember in John's first letter, he re- 
repeatedly addressed to believers as my little children. Not that he's the physical, biological father, but that these are believers. These are spiritual children in the faith. Well, here in this short letter, John's message is that in the Christian faith, for us as believers and as a church, love and truth are not at odds. They don't even need to coexist. Rather, they are bound together. They go hand in hand. How important this is, how central this is for us as a body of believers. What gives shape and definition to who we are, truth and love. He tips it off in verse 3 in the opening. Grace from God our Father and from Jesus Christ in truth and love. You see these two themes run through this letter. Truth and love. So first of all, the true Christian faith and church cultivates love. We've seen that as a central theme through John's first letter. This is what you see in verses 4 through 6. And we see a few things about this love. One, it is commanded by the Lord. Two, it's exemplified by the Apostle John in his own character, the way he interacts with this congregation. And it is characterized by obedience to the commands of God. So first of all, it is commanded. It's worth noting, John's concern and teaching about love is not first of personal concern for him or his own personal opinion. He's not asking these believers to remember or do something that he's commanded but something that God has commanded His people. Verse 5, He says, Now I ask, not as though I were writing you a new command, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to His commands. John is essentially saying, I'm not coming up with my own demands, my own commands, but that of the Lord. This is nothing new. We've had it from the beginning, He's saying likely referring to at least Jesus' own ministry. Think about John and the other apostles in the upper room where Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. So John is simply passing on what has come from the Lord. And in this way, I think John is a great example for us. Certainly, I know for me as a pastor, it's not a pastor's work to simply share his own opinions about things which the Scriptures do not directly address. I'm simply called to pass on to us what the Lord has said. In another way, he's a model and example for each and every one of us. Our central calling in life, in word and in deed, no matter what your vocation, no matter what your lot or your situation, is not to live out of our own ideas and opinions. It's to live a life reflecting the words and the commands of God Himself. And His command here is that we walk in love. There's something very freeing, I think, about the simplicity of the Christian faith in this way and of what John is reminding these believers about, that we are to love one another. Life can feel very complex at times, complicated. Our circumstances get bound up in them. Just a few days ago, a brother in Christ sent this very short devotional 
The title is Technological Incomprehensibility. Interesting title for a devotional. It's been estimated that the average person must learn to operate 20,000 pieces of equipment, three-fourths of them infuriating by design. What could better illustrate contemporary overload than that single statistic? Some elicit our gratitude, others our exasperation. He writes, I have a physics degree, but honestly, I don't know how to set my watch, set the clock on my car radio, or program my VCR. You can see this has been written a few years ago, probably. Young people, a VCR is... Just kidding. Every generation has to do that. He says, a spontaneous flow of progress is always in the direction of increasing complexity. I once changed our kitchen faucets, but had to make five separate trips to the hardware store before the replacement worked. We could go on. Life feels that way sometimes. Complex. Can't figure this out. We don't have to figure it all out. You don't have to figure out everything in your life. Follow the command of our God. Am I living out of the love of God that He has for me toward others? So it's commanded. It's not only commanded, but it's exemplified by the Apostle himself. Notice how he relates to this church. Here we have a command. It is a command to love. It's not a suggestion. It's not a proposal. It's a command. But notice how he engages with them. He doesn't beat them over the head with the command. He's he's very pastoral. He's got a shepherd's heart and relating to these people. Verse 5, he says, Now I ask you, dear lady, he doesn't command. He asks. That's loving. Wise. The Proverbs tell us a gentle word, a soft word, turns away anger. He's also an example in that his his concern is not for himself. What he might get out of them, it's for them. He desires that they would know this love one to another. And we're to follow that example. If you want to know what this love looks like, think through some of the one another's in Scripture. Spend time meditating on the one another's to give shape to what is this love? How do I live this love out? Be devoted to one another. Build up one another. Encourage one another. Carry one another's burdens. Pray for one another. There is a tendency I have noticed, and it can happen for pastors as well, uh, in my ministry over the years, that there can be a tendency, maybe it's our sin nature, that, that life in the body of Christ uh, becomes about me. What is this church doing for me? But we miss the blessing when we're oriented in that way. We, we miss the blessing of knowing Christ's likeness and growing in Christ's likeness when we don't... Re- recognize or realize the call that I am to pour out. I am to pour out. That's what our Savior has done for us. That's how I am to live. I am to serve. I am to love. I am to give. There is rich reward, most of all spiritually, as we live in that way. How many times have we heard those words of of love one another, but so central to who we are. It's commanded, it's exemplified, 
but it's also characterized by obedience, this love. Uh, It's not less than affection, but it does require more than affection. Verse 6, this is love that we walk according to His commandments. It almost feels circular a bit in thought. The command is to love, and then what is love? To walk in the commands. What am I to do? I'm to love. But what is this love? I'm to be in obedience to the commands of God. And yet I think many, many Christians would testify that as one grows in walking in the commands of God and in the knowledge of God's Word, they're moved more and more to love. And as one lives out a life of love, they're motivated to press further into the Word of God and His commands. Love and obedience. Ultimately, to conform to the person of Jesus Christ who embodied and embodies these things. Love and obedience. But this love, by necessity, must be characterized by obedience to the commands. Otherwise, it turns into something we might say quite soft, mushy, relative, ambiguous, undefined. So this love is much more than having good intent. Just by way of example, I love to run for exercise. Uh, It's a normal occurrence for me that while running outside on a street, it may not be a very, very busy street, but one in which cars are traveling at a good pace, 40, 45, 50 miles an hour, that I'm running and I come to a stop because I'm looking to cross the road. Cars are coming from time to time. And a car, there's no stop sign, there's no stoplight, there's no crosswalk. This car will come to an abrupt stop. They must see me that I'm looking to cross, and, and they must slam their brakes. Now, I'm sure they're doing this out of kindness. I never take them up on it. You learn, over time, it's a very dangerous thing. They're stopping when they should not stop. Out of kindness. I get it. I just wave them on. Just this last week, one of the places I like to run is the Rails to Trails in Vernon. To get there, I have to go under a bridge. Probably only 50, 60 feet in length. I come to the bridge, I let the car go, the car stopped in the middle of the bridge. He's underneath in the middle of the bridge, waving me on. I I just ignore. Go. It's not safe. Good intent, but not safe. The point is, the rules are there for a purpose. The rules and commands are there for the good of people. This love is characterized by living out of the commands of the Lord. That's what we need one from another. We follow after our Lord Jesus Christ. doesn't mean that it's to be cold or rude. We know Paul speaks of that in 1 Corinthians 13, the great chapter on love. You can have all knowledge, but if you do not have love, you're a clanging symbol. I was thinking about that, that image. Imagine if every time we corporately stood and, and sang that you just heard over all of it, a cowbell. Just, I'm all for cowbells. I mean, there's a place probably for cowbells. We're just overwhelmed. That's what it is to have all knowledge, but not have love. It's a clanging symbol. So this love is to be sincere. It has the other's interest in mind. So we see that true church cultivates this love. 
Notice, though, in this letter, the strong turn that takes place in verse 7. He says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and antichrist. Strong contrast here. Contrast verse 5 and 10. On the one hand, he says, love one another, verse 5. Verse 10, don't even receive this deceiver, this person into your house. Yes, the true church cultivates love, but it also must uphold and defend the truth. The truth of the Word, the truth of the Gospel. Recall from 1 John that one of the main false doctrines that were that these believers were facing was the teaching that Jesus only appeared to come in the flesh. A kind of Gnosticism or Docetism. He, he appeared to come in the flesh, but He did not actually take on physical form. The deceivers were suggesting that the, the divine could not take on the material form. Uh, the material, the physical, is inherently evil, said the false teachers. John has made it clear. Recall the opening verses of 1 John, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, we've looked at, our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. No, he has made it clear. This Jesus has come in the flesh. He has taken on human form to live as the second Adam, to be physically crucified, physically risen from the dead. If Christ did not come in physical form and shed His blood and rise from the dead, what hope do we have beyond death? What hope do we have that a sacrifice sufficiently has been made for my sin? No, this is central, John is saying. Notice in verse 9, he says, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The NIV translation, everyone who runs ahead. Maybe John is actually picking up on the false teacher's language. They've talked about moving on ahead. We're moving forward. We're progressive. We've got new ideas. We're more advanced. This simple message that life is obtained through the flesh, the body of Christ, is insufficient. We need a change in our thinking. It's a reminder, not all change is good. Not all change is bad. Think about our very gathering here with the Word of God opened in the vernacular language. We can hear and read and understand our hymn book, our confession of faith the tradition in which this church stands, the Reformed tradition. It's all the result of change. Many of us would say, for the good. A Protestant Reformation. A protest. A reform. Saints convinced that change must occur. Reform must happen. Some change is very good. Hard, but good. Reminds me of a pastor friend Humor, humor that he once told me. He said, Will, do you know how many Presbyterians it takes to change a light bulb? Change? Did you, did you say change? 
Change can be hard. Some change is bad. And John is saying here, this we cannot change. This we cannot let go of. A moving ahead of this is a departing from. No, Christ came in the flesh. He died on the cross. He was raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of new creation. In His body do we have hope. Notice verse 8. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we've worked for, but may win a full reward. Christ, who embodies love and, and truth, we must not let go of. Move beyond. If you've been to Washington, D.C. And, and toured some of the memorials, maybe the Lincoln Memorial, the Vietnam War uh, Memorial, it's not too difficult to examine these memorials, the, the architecture, the design, and walk away somewhat emotionally unaffected to perhaps miss what's behind the memorial, a context uh, involving great turmoil, national conflict, hardship, bloodshed. And it's very easy to read and to hear a letter like this, Second John, and miss the context. This is a message from an elder on the front lines. On the front lines. It's kind of like a scrap of war correspondence after a battle has passed. There's tension in this letter. There is deep concern that John has for these believers. And he's calling them to preserve two essential things. Love for one another and the truth of the gospel. A number of years ago, I think it was 2015, I went on a short-term mission to South Africa uh, through Transworld Radio. And while there, I inquired of, of my host if I could gather local pastors together uh, to simply learn about their context, their ministry situation. I was curious and interested. Uh, so two nights later, I had about 15 or 16 local pastors gathered around a table for uh, dinner. It was memorable uh, for me. Almost every one of them had congregations who were either facing significant economic hardship and or government resistance, trouble with, with authorities. So when I asked them, what's the primary focus of your ministry? Nearly every one of them was focused on these two things that John has hit on. Simply cultivating sincere love, unity among uh, the people of God, and remaining faithful to the truth of the gospel. You see, when in the life of the church or our own family or marriage or a significant relationship, when things are well and seemingly stable, we might squabble about minor things. Who didn't do the dishes? Do we have to eat this again? I don't like this song. But when you're in a battle and forces are pressing hard upon you, as in the context of 2 John, all energy is poured out to protect the heart. The heart of the faith. The heart of the church. Love one to another. Fidelity to uh, the truth. How are these two elements being worked out, manifested in your life and in mine? And aren't these the two that should be our central focus? at all times? 
A Christ-centered life is a life of love and truth. Let's look to our God in prayer. Oh Lord, how we praise You for uh, the preciousness of Your Word, the clarity of Your Word, the power of, of Your Word. Thank You, Lord, for the, the diversity of Your Word, how You provide for us Proverbs and wisdom literature, historical narrative and historical occurrences, letters, Gospels, to shape us that we would live in the story of Your Word. Father, we thank You that in Jesus Christ we have love and we have truth. You've united us to Him who embodies these things. We pray, O Lord, that You would grant Your people favor. You would bless us as a church as we live out a life of love one to another, charity, compassion, that we would help one another seek after Your commands, growing in them, loving them. And Lord, that we would be a people who love the truth of the good news. Use us, O Lord, in this way for one another and for the surrounding community in which You've set us. Lord, continue to feed us not only from Your Word, but from this table. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll stand together in response to the Word. Um, We'll sing 317.